Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time we're going back to cover maybe the beginning of the Attitude Era, depending on who you ask. It's SummerSlam 1997, Heart and Soul. Pusch, I know you weren't watching it this time, but this had to be a really exciting time to be a WWF fan. It feels like this is when they finally start turning things around. Oh, my God, yeah. Um, unfortunately, this pay-per-view was probably just kind of mired in the fact that it's only remembered for one major thing that happens on it, which, of course, we'll cover in detail. But there's just so much going on. And suddenly, after all these years, and I can't even think of how long it's been since they had more than, like, two interesting characters on screen at the same time. Suddenly, there's, like, five, maybe more, like suddenly like Shamrock's coming up and Bret Hart and Taker and Michaels have this awesome thing. And Austin's the man. And like, it just seems like they just keep adding one good element and then one good element. And like, suddenly they've started to pile them up and this has got to feel like the most exciting thing in the world to actually have a show worth watching finally. Yeah. And this is when I think you can say they're really telling stories at this point. Like the Sean Brett feud is a story. The Brett Austin feud is a story that, Undertaker Kane saga is definitely a story like these are well thought out long term storylines. They're doing that just advanced just enough week by week. And that's I think that's what gets lost when people talk about the Attitude Era when people talk about how successful it was or how great it was or how much they miss it. You don't miss like the week to week shit where like Val Venus talks about his dick. That's not what you're thinking of. The success of the Attitude Era is these incredibly well-made, long arcing stories that go on for months and months and months and feed in all of these different characters. That's the coolest part. Like when we talk about like the main event storyline here, it's so intricate and involves so many people. Like it's it's an amazing thing that they just lose the ability to do later on. Yeah, and I think a lot of the credit there, I, you just feel like it has to belong to Vince Russo because it feels like, I mean, that didn't go away immediately when he left, but in the years to come, it certainly did go away. I think maybe Chris Kresge was the guy who kind of picked up the ball and ran with it once Russo left, but once Kresge is gone and like Stephanie takes over creative, it definitely feels like their storylines suddenly get very siloed and separated from each other. What I've always assumed is that Vince Russo always had the vision for these like big, huge stories and all of these characters being involved in them. And Vince was the one who like kind of kept the pressure off of him. Don't worry about the week to week. You just tell your story. I'll come up with the fine detail that makes it all make sense. Yeah. And that's why they were such a good team together. When Russo went to a WCW, he had so much pressure every week to try to compete with WWE. They didn't feel like he could tell his long arcing stories. He just had to go for like every week a new story. And that maybe that's the secret to why he was never successful ever again, is he just didn't have that buffer. I don't know. But God knows, it really does seem like he's the one with the vision. Because this is like the one and only time in this company's history they ever consistently do this. I think th- I think they were better at it when there were fewer pay-per-views. I think if you go back to like the four pay-per-views a year era, there were definitely some times they pulled off some like Macho Man the mega powers implode and is kind of, I think the most obvious example, but there's some, I think there's some other ones where they pulled off some really good, like long-term store. Hogan and Andre is another one. They pulled off some really impressive long-term story arcs, but that's a lot easier to do when you only have four pay-per-views. It's a lot harder to do with monthly pay-per-views. And by the same token, like Cena and rock and like the, the 
Undertaker's trials and tribulations at WrestleMania, those stories are easier to tell if you only need to tell them 10 times over the course of a full year, you know? Yeah, the limited availability of the guys involved helped them there. So this has been a wild summer for the WWF in 1997, and it comes to a head here. Um, so, of course, the night after King of the Ring 1997 was when Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels got into a real fight backstage. Um, according that's what to, you want to call it. <laughs> it was not much of a fight, in my understanding. But according to witnesses, like, Bret had been steaming for a while here. He walked in. They had words. And then, you know, it was it sounds like kind of a slap fight. But Shawn got a big chunk of his hair pulled out and. Sean like stormed out of the building saying this was an unsafe working environment and allegedly said something about driving to Boston, which is where Nitro was that night. And I think Raw was in Hartford, if I'm remembering right. So it was somewhere he easily could have driven to and just showed up on the show. Of course, he didn't do that because he would have got WCW would have gotten sued like Bischoff. As crazy a bastard as Eric Bischoff is, he wasn't going to just put him on TV in that situation, knowing that he was under contract with the WWF. I wonder, though, man. Is it worth it to just take the lawsuit? Because it's Shawn Michaels. Like, if it was just like, like, yeah. he, he's famously said that he would have let the DX in the arena when they invaded at Hampton Roads. But I don't think they actually would have. But if it's like a main event guy, you let yeah. him in, right? Yeah. But yeah, Shawn Michaels was to show up on his TV and too sweet the outlaw. Yeah, you let him do it. They sent Brett home and had to just like rewrite the show that night to reflect the fact that they no longer had Brett and Shawn on it. Shawn refused to show up for work for weeks afterwards. I think he was hoping Vince would give him his release and he could go to WCW. Uh, I mean, the company is in some rough financial shape at the time, as we'll discuss. So. They could have used the savings, but Vince was not going to let Sean go. It just feels like that was always his red line was we can't lose Sean Michaels. Well, I wonder if, too, like losing Bret Hart is a big deal, but he's also a little bit older. Yeah. It's also unclear what Bischoff would even do with him. If they give Sean Michaels, That's... they're just going to slot him into the oh, leader of the NWO. They're going to so make millions. easy to put him in the NWO and then have him and Hall and Nash and Pac split off into the yeah. wolf pack and they just do the wolf pack Hogan. right there yeah. yeah oh my god yeah it's so clear like not even not even late night you know not even wcw could have screwed that up at that point like literally we're talking about like millions upon millions whereas it, as vince was right when he let brett go brett didn't do shit in wcw they didn't know how to use him right they didn't have a clear role for him no. he was older i mean vince was right to take the side of Shawn michaels even though he winds up losing him at not too far down the line. Yeah, that's the you know unfortunate thing is right as Sean is having that incredibly hot run, he breaks his back and has to retire. Yeah, the irony is Sean basically creates his own version of the Wolfpack in WWF, and it's hugely successful right up until he has to retire. So Canadian Stampede in July was one of the greatest pay-per-views in company history. We've covered that or reposted that a few weeks ago if you're interested in hearing that one. Um in the main event, the Hart Foundation team defeated Steve Austin, Goldust, Shamrock, and the Legion of Doom in an amazing 10-man tag match. That was Owen uh, catching Austin and a schoolboy and grabbing the trunks to get the pin, um, setting up the Owen Hart-Austin match for this. But just to reflect on Canadian Stampede, 
What a great show. Like, only four matches on that show, but they are all just outstanding. Great card, great variety. One of the best shows I've ever seen. Easily the best in your house. Probably still to this day, one of the five best WWF pay-per-views of all time. Like, one of the best crowds of all time. Incredible heat. Yeah. Just before we get off this topic, just because I feel like it should be mentioned every time we bring this up, what was the team supposed to be for Team USA? Austin, Sean, Sid, and the Road Warriors. The greatest ever They had to pull Sean and Sid because Sean walked out and Sid was in a car accident. I want you to go and watch that Canadian Stampede match now. Watch that nuclear crowd and think about what would have happened if Sid and Sean had been on on the USA team. There would have been riots. Yeah, imagine the heat Sean would have gotten there. Sid probably would have gotten a pop. I don't know. Sid might have well have gotten a pop because Sid was really over at this time. But yeah, the heat on Sean in Calgary would have been absolutely nuclear. The heat on Sean in Austin as yeah. Bret Hart's most vile enemies. <laughs> yeah, they were missing that. But still, absolutely special. Go watch it right now. So the next night on Raw, Brett was announced as the number one contender for the WWF title, giving him the right to face The Undertaker at SummerSlam. Um, Hart, in his promo, boasted that if he didn't beat The Undertaker for the title, he would never, I think he said, I don't know if he said wrestle in the United States again. I think he may have said set foot in the United States again. So he is banished from the United States if he doesn't win the title here. And then, like, the next week, Vince announced that they had actually added that to the match contract, and he would have to honor his word. That's pretty fucking funny. Yeah. Um, And then they did this thing where they had, like, all the hearts make bets on their matches. Uh, Bulldog said that if he lost to Shamrock, he would eat a can of dog food. Pillman would have to wear a dress if he lost to Gold Dust. Um Austin would have to kiss Owen's ass if he didn't beat him for the IC title. And if any of the hearts lost their matches, Nightheart would have to shave his goatee, which is probably the most entertaining of all of these. I love this so much. Like just the fact that all these little stipulations are part of all of these matches, just add to them. Even if the dog food thing is pretty fucking disgusting in the way that they do it. Yeah. Um, the Nightheart thing doesn't end up happening because they just kind of, they send him home because I think they found out he had signed a contract with some indie promotion I had never heard of, which is a very Jim Nightheart thing to do. Imagine burning your bridge with WWF because you signed with some fucking like New England indie. Yeah. And like he just flat didn't tell them. And then they found out and they're like, oh, you can't be on our TV while you're under contract with somebody else. You're going to get us sued. So he goes away for a while. He doesn't come back until like the Garden, uh, the Garden Raw in September is when he finally comes back. And by the time he comes back, he's just emerged from a giant cloud of cocaine. And it's not good times. <sighs> so then there's another twist of the main event as Shawn Michaels returns, asks for a role at SummerSlam, and he's made the special guest referee for the main event. But with the stipulation that if he shows any bias against Brett, he's banned from wrestling in the United States ever again. That is amazing. Yeah. And I'm so glad they added that because the end of this main event doesn't work without oh, that stipulation. So good. I will put this over so much, but I think it is one of the best endings to any match I've ever seen. Yeah. Just the idea that despite Shawn Michaels desperately wanting to fuck over Bret Hart, he can't. And he doesn't want to make The Undertaker angry. So he's 
forced for the first time in his entire professional career to be an objective, unbiased person. And we know somebody's going to lose something. Either Taker's going to lose the title or Brett is going to lose his ability to wrestle in America or Sean is going to lose. I mean, seems pretty clear Brett is going to lose the title or Brett is going to win the title from Taker here. But then you're like, wait, but Sean is actually going to count the pin for Brett. It seems impossible to imagine that. And unfortunately, this is during the time where Sean, you can't force him to cut a serious promo to save his fucking life. And it'd be great if he actually would. Yeah. Cut a promo to like, be like, oh yeah, Ben man. It'd be great if he cut a promo that was like, I will be dead in my fucking grave before I count a three for Brett the Hitman Hart. Yeah. And in the background, all this is the Undertaker Kane storyline. Uh, by this point, Paul Bear has started claiming that Kane is alive and he's produced some evidence to prove it, but we're still two months from Kane actually showing up. I do. Wonder if there was any consideration to having Kane debut here, but I think his debut at Hell in a Cell is so perfect. I'm glad they left it, held that off until then. You can't beat him ripping the door off the cage. If we ever become a sellout podcast that just does lists for instead of abnormal episodes, I would love it if we did like a best debuts of all time list because I'm not sure you can beat Kane debuting at Hell in a Cell and ripping the door exactly. off the cell. I don't think you can construct that moment any better. Like months and months and months of build, a hot-ass storyline between Sean and Taker that makes you completely forget about the Kane thing right up until the moment he shows up and destroys Taker is truly brilliant. And then our sub-main event here is going to be Steve Austin versus Owen Hart for the Intercontinental title. And, of course, as we said, Austin has promised um, if he doesn't beat Owen for the title, he'll kiss Owen's ass. Uh, Quite a stipulation there. Well, here's the other thing, too, is that that stipulation ties them in knots when what happens happens. Because, like, just we'll just go ahead and say this now. This is the famous match where Stone Cold Steve Austin gets his neck broken. Okay, well, Owen normally in that situation could have just pinned him, and then they yeah. just could have like gone just, on and he would just called the match. Like yeah, you just go back later. But the problem is, is that if Austin loses, he has to kiss his ass. You can't you can't make him do that, and you can't have him not like go through with this. Can't have him not go through with his word. Yeah, so yeah. we'll obviously get to it, but it it ends in one of the most confusing. It's so clear that everyone in the ring is like, I don't fucking know what to do. Shit. Um, on the way in here, Austin and Owen were part of one of my favorite matches in Raw history. On the July 14th Raw, Austin decides to defend the tag titles by himself against the British Bulldog and Owen Hart. Shawn Michaels had been his partner, but Shawn walked out. They gave Austin the opportunity to pick a new partner, and he declined. So he's in a handicap match for the tag belts against Bulldog and Owen. He holds his own for a while, but then the two-on-one gets to be too much. And then they announce that Steve Austin's partner has arrived at the building and we see a white pair of boots, you know, walking towards the ring. This will turn out to be the WWF debut of Dude Love. And it's an absolutely incredible moment. Like, there's so much that goes into this moment, because first of all, the idea that Dude Love would ever have actually shown up on WWF television is just fucking crazy. Like that Mick Foley has gotten to this level where they're just like, yeah, Mick, fuck, dude, love, let's do it finally. And you're going to be a main event storyline. Yeah. And dude, love sticks around forever. He gets main event title matches. 
yeah, he ends up main eventing pay-per-views against Austin the year after this. Um, but yeah, so Mankind had been campaigning for weeks to be Austin's partner. And Austin kept telling him, no, because you're a complete piece of trash. So the video on the Titantron comes up and Dude Love is like, you know, I understand why you didn't want to team with that scraggly cat Mankind, but here's Dude Love coming to the rescue. Dude Love comes out. Austin is just, like, horrified by this. He is <laughs> appalled by what he's witnessing. But, you know, once Dude gets to the ring, Austin reluctantly tags him in. Dude, you know, gets in the ring, puts in some work. Him and Austin have pretty good natural chemistry. It's easy to forget Austin is a hell of a tag wrestler. He didn't get to do it as much later in his career. But him and Brian Pillman were a great tag team in WCW. Absolutely. And then Austin nails the stunner. I think it's on, I can't remember if it's on Bulldog or Owen. I think it's on Bulldog. Nails the stunner on Bulldog and dude gets the pin. And, you know, some women jump the guardrail to celebrate with dude. And Austin, you know, reluctantly shakes dude's hand. And we're set for a great odd couple tag team. This, you know, ends up getting cut short because of Austin's neck injury, unfortunately. One of the great things about this, and one of the great through lines throughout all of WWF history, is that every once in a while, WWF will remember that a relationship exists and just keeps it continuing basically forever. We've kind of joked about, like, Test and Shane McMahon are best friends forever, and Billy Gunn and China like, always followed each other. Another one is the only person in the entire fucking universe that Stone Cold Steve Austin does not want to harm is Mankind. Yeah. And Austin and right Foley like continue to have a relationship for years, and they actually reference it like when they're feuding in 1998 when it's dude love, and even when they're you know friendly but there's tension in 1990. Like they always kind of go back to like uh, this Austin Foley relationship, even in 2000 when Foley's the commissioner and Austin is like looking for the guy who ran him over. And Austin wants to murder Foley, but he he doesn't. Just because you're my only fucking friend who is not Jim Ross. The one man he respects in wrestling. Yep. And that's, again, guys, it's so big to establish those relationships. You can get so much mileage out of them. So the week after that, I think they had been in San Antonio for that Raw. The week after that, they're back in Canada, in Nova Scotia, and they do a huge main event. Austin, Dude Love, and Undertaker against Brett Bulldog and Owen. Uh, the Hearts win this one. It's a flag match. The Hearts win this one after Pillman interferes. Uh, they were unopposed by Nitro here. Nitro was on Tuesday this week because TNT was showing some Civil War miniseries on Monday. Yeah, the and Kim this, Burns one, yeah. Yeah. This drew a monster 4.3 rating, unopposed by Nitro. Damn. Yeah. Uh, this Nova Scotia Raw, I think, is also the famous incident where uh, Jim Cornette called Kevin Dunn <coughs> Bucky Beaver motherfucker and you know, was forced to apologize to him. The tumultuous shit going on at this time. <laughs> well, just that cabin. First, Nova Scotia is impossible to get to. Like, you have to take, like, multiple planes and a boat to get there, I think. It's an island in the middle of nowhere off the coast of Canada. And, like... I think this is also when they're flying in on like Saturday to save money and just staying in the hotel for two nights without anything to do. So like, yeah, everybody is like real tight on their fuse at this point. 
And it's also worth mentioning that we're so lucky that in this year, for whatever reason, they had just booked so many Canadian shows way more than they ever had before. The only place they were drawing. So, like, every single night, these crowds are, like, liquid fucking hot for these matches because of the Brett storyline. Yeah, and one week they're in America, and then the next week they're in Canada. And, like, some of these trips make no going from (coughs) – but, yeah, and then – Shortly after this, that becomes impossible. We'll get to, they start taping Raw not long after this, and you can't do that anymore. But yeah, here they're do, they're going live every week trying to compete with Nitro. So yeah, one week they could be in Texas, and the next week they could be in Nova Scotia. It's awesome. Like, yeah. it, it makes no fucking sense, and I'm sure that the wrestlers hated it to high heaven, but man, it makes for great TV. So some other kind of odds and ends. They did a best of SummerSlam show that drew a 3.75 rating on July 14th. So that was right after um, that Raw. That doesn't sound right. That Raw famously has the La Femme Nikita will start in five minutes crawl. So it must have been a different week. Um, Nikita. Yeah. So that July 14th Raw was like the first time they really did. You know what? That's July 21st. That July 21st Raw was the first time they did a really long overrun. They went like 10 minutes past uh, when they would normally go off the air. And during the match, USA ran a crawl that was like, La Femme Nikita will start in 10 minutes and then five minutes. And then like the match ended like right on cue, which I don't think anybody was happy about. I don't know. I was pretty excited to watch that episode of La Femme Nikita, I'm very sure. Yeah. Um, The week before that, they'd run, like, from 10 to 11, they did a Best of SummerSlam show where they showed, like, the old main events. They showed, like, the Mega Powers against Andre and DiBiase, like, that, the old school stuff. Interesting on a couple levels. One is that they showed all these these guys who are now in WCW. They show Hogan and... Lex Luger and DiBiase and Savage and all these other guys, which, you know, kind of shies away from the old philosophy of we don't want to feature guys who are on the opponent's TV. And it does a huge 3.75 rating, which it doesn't feel like they ran any more specials like this afterwards, which is kind of crazy to me. Yeah, you would definitely think that they would have. It just only makes sense. Yeah, I would been this successful. Maybe even done, made this like a regular one-hour show. Do like Flashback Friday or something. I've always thought that that would be a really fun idea for a show. Yeah. Like they don't even do that stuff on like their YouTube channel. Especially and have- back here where like home video is like there isn't streaming. Home video is not as big back then. Like I think you could have really boosted your home video if you're like here's all the awesome stuff from the past and try to sell the video. You know, you can do inserts like, hey, if you want to see the rest of you know SummerSlam 1989, call this number and order the VHS. This makes sense, man. Yeah. Um, around this time, they're gonna move Raw's time slot. Raw has been running from eight to ten, head to head with Nitro. They're going to move it from 9 to 11 to try to get the 10 to 11 hour unopposed. But Nitro responds by going to a three-hour show. Nitro responds by going to a three-hour show, which I think in the long run was disastrous. I mean, it's... I don't think it's possible to put on a three-hour weekly wrestling show that is not an absolute fucking miserable disaster. It's just... Two hours is basically the maximum possible time you can Absolutely. keep people interested in a wrestling show. Yeah. Like the, I think the biggest problem, 
problem with Raw is that it's three hours long. I think they could put on a good two-hour show every week. They just can't do three hours. And I mean, it's it's just so much to do, especially if you have like an entirely other program. Also, it's just impossible. Uh, Sid versus Vader was rumored for this show, but Sid was in a car accident and got hurt. He they brought him to Raw at one point. This is I've heard different versions of this story. The kind of infamous one was that he told people he was having a heart attack but then went back to the hotel instead of going to the hospital, which seems absurd and like reason reasonable that they fired him afterwards. However, in the observer, it was reported that he had an anxiety attack, which cast this in a very different light to me. And that would actually explain an entire lot because it's not like at this time, not a lot's understood about that sort of thing. Um, God, doesn't it completely rewrite his story if that's just something that he dealt with this entire part 100%. of his career? Totally. And like this in particular, like going back to the hotel because you have an anxiety attack makes total sense. And he probably didn't want to tell people he had an anxiety attack. So he may have said maybe, I mean, heart attack is not what I, but like uh, telling people like, I mean, his heart was probably racing. I understand that would be a symptom of an anxiety attack. So, like, this does feel a little misunderstood. And, like, today this would go down completely differently. Yeah, it, it probably feels like what he really did was he called the office and said, hey, something's wrong with my heart. I don't know what's going on. And then they were just like, sure, Sid, you're having a heart attack. Sid, wait, got wait, another wait. softball game. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And that that really sucks because, like, if that is the case – it's not like there was any sort of and we've kind of talked about this with Shawn Michaels with the lose my smile thing. There was probably a lot of mental illness going around the yeah. locker room at this point. It's yeah. been a nightmare to work for this company. They have no resources for anybody and no like understanding or sympathy. Yeah. It's but just, yeah, they fire him, which is insane that a star of his caliber would get fired like at this point in the Monday Night War. But they had just they were just fed up with him. And, like, it's so toxic that he literally doesn't even get signed by WCW for, like, another three years. Like, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, he ends up hanging out in ECW for a while and I think just, like, playing softball and doing whatever else he did in his spare time when he wasn't wrestling. When you think about the idea that he was a person who had mental health issues and just needed time to himself from time to time, yeah, doesn't that cast the softball shit in a totally different light? Yeah, like... Yeah, like it sounds a lot like he was depressed and had issues with anxiety and like that's why he would just go home because he just would get to the point where he couldn't take being on the road anymore. Which shouldn't be weird because they're working 350 fucking nights a year. Yeah, now the schedule is insane at this point. It's crazy that anyone wasn't depressed and addicted to drugs. And it's actually funny that Sid's one of the few people who never – like yeah. notably got addicted to drugs. You really never, never hear any. about yeah, you don't really hear about Sid doing pills. I don't even know if he drank very much. He probably didn't because he was probably a health nut. Yeah, honestly, like the fact that this one thing is what was always held against him, and now in the modern era, we now realize like, oh shit, that's well, probably just a mental health. It was shit. also the time he stabbed Arn Anderson. But also well, that that was not that when I heard more about that, I took that was a very different story than I had initially thought it was as well. Yeah. If our podcast is good for anything, hopefully it's to shine lights on things that like everyone just sort of assumed that they knew everything about. And like, we've gone through some of these stories so many times that we've revealed all these new facts about them. It's like, wait a minute, 
there's a lot more to that than we thought. And Arn Anderson is not nearly the victim we've always treated him as. No, there was some, I mean, I think that's part of why like no charges were pressed because you know, there was more blame on both sides there than it initially appeared. Um, anyway, we're not trying overall, to like full, totally exonerate Sid here. It's just, no, no, Sid was totally out of control there too, but Arn was the one who introduced the scissors <laughs> is the biggest detail that I didn't know. And it's, it's just worth, re-examining this historical events through our modern gaze like if this stuff happened now you'd be like oh shit like he's got like he really needs to go home and deal with his mental health that stuff has happened now we've had like Mauro Ronaldo and people like that have actually gotten to do that god knows how many people that would have helped in the past yeah overall business is way up from 1995 but Live gates are like flat from where they were the previous year in 1996. TV ratings are down quite a bit from 1996 as I think Nitro is taking a bigger and bigger slice of the pie. And most importantly, their pay-per-view buys are down a ton. They're probably out, I'd say, over half a million dollars a month compared to the previous year, which is really starting to add up as we're like eight months into the year and they're four million dollars behind in their revenue projections yikes that's yeah. brutal so this is where you start hearing bankruptcy this is where you start hearing maybe we need to let brett go um so they've taken on significantly higher talent expenses because they've signed so many of their top stars to guaranteed contracts brett of course is the biggest <laughs> he's got a million dollar guarantee he signed the previous October. So the way the contracts worked back then, as per my understanding, is you just got paid what you got paid during the course of the year. You know, they pay you get your payoffs for your house shows, your pay-per-view bonuses. And then at the end of the year, you know, when you come to, you know, whenever your contract was initially signed, they look at how much they've paid you and they look at your guarantee. And if you're under the guarantee, they have to make up the difference. Brett can't be anywhere near his guarantee because business has been the shits and he missed a bunch of time with injuries. So they are going to owe him hundreds of thousands of dollars in October. This, I think, helps explain the Vince breach in his contract deal. Like Vince at this point feels like he can't pay Brett that, you know, $500,000 he's going to owe him in October to get him to his minimum. Also, how weird is it that that's, like, their basic contract? Like, there's a lot wrong with the idea of doing that, especially if, for whatever reason, it just seems so dependent on having, like, one or two huge shows during the year that'll make up for the rest of the year. Well, what if those tank, Vince? Like, that's... Just because WrestleMania worked when you first started doing this doesn't mean that should have been your business model. (laughs) Well... I mean, the alternative is just pay guys their guarantee every two weeks, which they sure as shit don't want to do. I think I assume that's how they get paid now. But at this point, like they want to just have to I mean, what's a million dollars divided by 52 or you know, 26 paychecks? Yeah, let's see. One million dollars divided by into 26 paychecks for the year is thirty eight thousand dollars a week before taxes good lord a, yeah that is a lot of money they'd be paying bread every two weeks but gigantic cash crunch to have all these balloon payments like this is what killed jim crockett promotions was they put everybody on guaranteed contracts and nobody was going to hit their minimum so they were going to owe everybody a ton of money at the same time and it's similar to what killed ecw where they were just waiting for the pay-per-view yeah. buys to like actually allow them to pay for everything and then that you just if they hold those up, you're never going to get any of the money, and then the, it just stacks yeah. up, stacks up, stacks up. 
Yeah, I mean, one, it takes the it takes like a solid 90 plus 90, 120 days to get all the pay-per-view money in. And then you have some of the pay-per-view companies being dirtbags and being like, well, if they go out of business, we don't have to pay them. So maybe we should just slow roll this one. That's what happened to ECW. The pay-per-view companies just stopped paying them knowing they were going to go bankrupt. And it is what it is. And unfortunately, like when you press too hard to try to like expand and do that kind of thing, because that's the same thing that happened to Crockett, you'll get into these situations where you just create a level of debt that there's no possible way to pay back. No. And so Brett has the biggest contract, but then, you know, Austin, Taker, Sean, they're all on like five hundred to seven hundred thousand dollar guarantees. Uh Foley probably has a decent contract <laughs> by this point. Even like some of their terrible free agent signings, like Mark Miro and Mark Henry, they're paying a lot of guaranteed money to. Pillman, who can barely wrestle. It's just fascinating. Like, we talked about this before, and I think we even kicked around the idea of doing, like, a So You Think You Can Book. Like, what yeah. would happen if you just cut all of those people because you had to? Yeah. And then, So like, You Think You Can Book the WWF bankruptcy? Literally, like, you can't have anybody who makes more than $200,000 go. Yeah. Like, that's, woof. This Maybe is, you get to keep Austin. <laughs> yeah. This is where Vince, um, like, floated the idea um, that they were going to turn, like, the company back into a northeastern territory to cut costs. I mean, they do a lot of cost cutting here. They start cutting back the number of people they bring in for TV tapings. They only bring people in, like, if they absolutely need them to appear live, they do more pre-tapes and more just, you know, we're just going to leave this guy off the show this week, not bring him to TV. They switch from doing Raw live every Monday to doing a live Raw every other Monday and then taping Raw for the next week, the following Tuesday, which they kept doing that way. It's not until, like, Late 99, they stopped doing that. So that sticks for a long time. That saved a ton of money to not be going live every week. Which makes total sense. And, I mean, they do it in a smart way. But really all Vince is doing is just trying to buy time. Like, all of these, like, small cost-cutting measures aren't really going to get the job done in the long run if you can't turn business around. But I think he, he can see at this point, like, all right, we're starting to do something right. Now that we have Austin... Maybe we can actually like if we can just get business back to a point where it's working, we won't have to go any further than this. If they hadn't hit on Austin, I can't imagine what they how much further they would have been going by this point because there just wouldn't have been any future to see. Yeah. The other big thing they did is they changed the in your house pay-per-views. This is where they start going to three hour shows every month and charging the full 29 raise the prices to 29.99 i don't know if they were still at like 20 bucks or 25 before this but they raised the prices which i think the idea would have been we're going to raise the prices we won't sell as many but we'll make more money as long as our buy rates don't go down by a third the big thing that happens is not only do their buy rates not drop they actually go up because they start putting on more interesting shows with you know better attractions as the main events so this ends up being a huge boon to them financially. They end up grossing millions more dollars from this. Like, yes. This is between this and letting Brett go. Like this is where they get the money to sign Mike Tyson for WrestleMania. It is amazing that they come to this. It's one of the best financial strategies they've ever yeah. come up with. Like it's very impressive. 
Well, it remind this is like the old Zane Bresloff philosophy I've ever heard. Zane Bresloff, the legendary promoter for the WWF and WCW, guy who ran promotions and ticket sales for them. He always believed that people are actually less likely to buy super cheap tickets. Like his philosophy was a guy who buys a $5 ticket looks like a cheapskate, whereas if tickets are, say, 30 bucks, it seems like a legitimate date or like a legitimate <laughs> night out with the boys. And this certainly played out here. It's, it's interesting. I do think sometimes in wrestling people have gone too far. To, like with WWE Network, the fact they were always pounding how cheap it was always felt like a mistake to me. I completely agree with you, actually. I, to be totally honest, like if you let's say you were going to go to a WWE show and like you went and looked at like floor tickets and you were like, oh, man, uh, these are only like 20 bucks. You'd be like, well, that show's probably going to suck. They're not yeah. going to put anything good on it. Why would I even go to this one? Yeah. But if they're like jacked up and it's like a house show, you'd be like, oh, shit, they're going to do something awesome on this show. Like, why else would they be so fucking expensive? Something two people are more interested in, like value than just the price. <laughs> yeah. And at the end of the day, they were probably undercutting the idea. Like, if it's a good wrestling show, I feel like no one's ever really gotten a fixed idea of like what people are willing to pay for that. No, I mean for WrestleMania, people pay seriously thousands and thousands of dollars for good seats for WrestleMania, and like even for the upper deck seats now, hundreds of bucks. Absolutely. Like, for, for whatever reason, this is something people are willing to literally travel from, like, thousands of miles away to go see WrestleMania. Just on the idea that it exists. Like, yeah. not even because of the show itself or anything booked on it. Like, people who are into wrestling go way further than in other forms of entertainment. All right. So to get into the show, it's uh, Sunday, August the 3rd, 1997. That's uniquely weird about these 97 shows, that they're always super early in the month. I think they were trying to get as much distance as they could from WCW shows. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, The Continental Airlines Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Um, Sellout crowd of over 20,000 announced. uh, 17,361 paid for a $523,000 gate huge numbers for the time that's a bigger gate than they did at the rumble in san antonio when they had like fifty thousand people there that's fucking wild to me but i guess it makes sense since they were basically giving that shit away for free just to pack the house the the san antonio tickets were all five bucks like it didn't add up to a lot of money these they charged much higher prices but they still packed the place and there's kind of an interesting backstory about the show being in new jersey that we'll get to a little later um on common, oh, uh, they do 235,000 buys, which like isn't a really impressive number for SummerSlam, but that's way up from 157,000 the previous year for Sean versus Vader. If you ever want to know why they pulled the plug on Vader's push, that number would be why. Ooh. I, I did not remember that that was that big of a bomb. That is... I think by a wide margin, the worst SummerSlam buy rate of all time. And we always just assumed it was just because the match was so bad. But honestly, I think it's just because WWE fans just didn't give a shit about Vader. No, I don't think they did a good job building up Vader, and I don't think their fans were into him. 
Um, on commentary, the uh, you know, 1997 team of Vince McMahon, Jim Ross, and Jerry Lawler. Um, you know, we'll have some thoughts on their commentary throughout the night, but I thought they were pretty much fine here. I didn't have any big issues. I'll go so far as to say <clears throat> that all, after all of like the cursed, horrifying commentary that Jerry Lawler has done over the years, I thought he was pretty good here. I thought he was pretty funny. He was on top yeah. of his game. Vince was, I thought Vince was fine. I thought JR was, you know, great in the analyst role. I always like him in that yeah. role. This is like peak time for Jerry Lawler's making off the cuff funny comments. Vince is like no selling every single thing that comes out of his mouth, and JR's just trying to tell the story. Uh, we cut straight into the arena where they play the Star Spangled Banner. That's unusual for a WWF show, but they're really playing up the USA Canada thing here, which is smart. Yeah, it is, especially since they play O Canada later on. Yeah. And then we roll the introductory package. Uh, great, pro- great promo here. This is the If Life Were Fair package, and it goes through like all these situations. You know, if life were fair. Bret Hart would be a legend being lauded in his quest for his fifth WWF title reign. Um, you know, the undertaker would be a revered champion instead of battling the demons of his past. Shawn Michaels would still be the champion instead of having to forfeit the title, but Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels would be best friends instead of bitter rivals, but life isn't fair. And whoever said it would be. How much would you give? for these kind of promos before shows to get, make a comeback now. God, the th- funny thing is, I feel like they go away from them by, by like the next year. I feel like they get much more expressionistic, like yeah, much more like the next, it feels like the 98 ones are all like history. They're all like clips of history. And they're yes. like, here's a speech from Winston Churchill that will intercut with like Austin and Vince fight in like they get much different. Whereas here they're very just like, <coughs> let's have a narrator tell the story, just hit it right on the head. Like, and the, I feel like know. there are so many of those from like this year and like, they're all yeah. unbelievable. Just tell me the story. Tell yeah. me like what metaphors you're trying to use. Tell me what overarching story you're trying to have me follow. It helps so much for me not to have to be the one who puts all the fucking pieces together. Yeah, I love the Bret Hart WrestleMania one, the like, you know, imagine that for over a decade you've been, you know, the most beloved babyface in the company. But now, like, this man has come along and he mocks your legacy, but the fans are cheering him. Somehow um, you've become the villain in your yeah. own story. <laughs> There's only one choice. You must defeat him. But what if Bret Hart loses? What but becomes what if, of Bret Hart then? But what if Bret Hart loses? <laughs> yeah. God, it's just so fucking good, man. And it's so simple. It's literally just a guy in the studio on a microphone, not unlike the ones we're talking into right now, just saying what the story is. Yeah. Or the uh, the Steve Austin barking dog promo from Survivor Series '96. Pink tights. What the hell is that? You lost to the boy toy at WrestleMania. That's embarrassing. And just in the background, a dog just barking yes. and going crazy. Perfect. Yeah. And then we come back for some very unimpressive opening pyro. Like, oh my God! Sparklers. They should not know. They should not have. Like this is a, <laughs> this is another thing where it's just like if you're gonna cut costs, just don't do the pyro. Just do a light show. No pyro is better than this embarrassing shit. This is like stuff you'd buy your kids for the Fourth of July. Like little sparklers. 
and the set is very small. Like, yeah. this is clearly not an arena that's set up for something of this size. So, like, they're just kind of, like, working around what they have. It's yeah, okay this is before they started doing the big screen for the pay-per-view, which let them sell a lot more tickets. Like, that's right. the giant screen blocks a ton of seats, which makes sense for Raw, where you're not usually selling the places out. But for the pay-per-views, where you can actually sell them out, you cost yourself a lot of money blocking that many seats off. Yep. Uh, they've got the steel cage set up, so we're going to open with Mankind versus Hunter Hearst Helmsley. You know, makes sense to do the cage at the beginning because it takes forever to set up and take down the big blue cage. So, yeah, this is back in the day where they literally have to assemble it during yeah. the show if they don't do it first. Yeah, so like you've almost got to put the cage match on either first or last. It's too much. It's tw- Otherwise, it's 10 minutes on either side of it in the middle of the show, and that just kills the momentum. Yep. Uh, so yeah, the opener, Hunter's Helmsley versus Mankind in a steel cage. These two have been feuding since King of the Ring. Helmsley used China's interference to beat Mankind to win the tournament. They had a rematch at Canadian Stampede. They fought to a double count out there, and then they did the thing where they were fighting through the arena like all night. Like after each match, they would cut back to them backstage, and they'd still be fighting each other. That's an underrated part of why that show is so good. It's yeah. just having that through it's line, a great like. Through line. These two have phenomenal chemistry, and it's actually one of those things that's not mentioned that often in either of their careers, which is a shame because Triple H does not become who he becomes without Mick Foley. Yeah. And like this, they just never miss when they're together. Yeah. Foley has been jumping forth between being dude love and mankind. He's going to be mankind for this match tonight. And I love that as an added touch, he doesn't come out with the tag belt because it's dude love who's the tag champion, not mankind. I am so in love with the idea that, like, he doesn't even understand that they're not the same person. They're separate people. Yeah. (laughs) That that is so funny to me. Uh, Really good heat for Helmsley. Nice pop for Mankind. You can tell he's starting to get over as a baby face here. It's actually funny because I never really realized how, like, when exactly it was that, like, people started to get behind him. I thought it was later than this, but they are so clearly behind him here. They do here, but then he ends up turning heel the next year. But then he, re- I mean, when he really gets incredibly over is really when he starts doing, like, Socko and the comedy stuff. But right. this is the first step. Like, he, by this point, has really leveled up. The, you know, the sit-down interviews and showing the old dude love clips have really gone done a lot for him. He's probably the third biggest baby face in the company at this point, which is pretty impressive. I don't think yeah. anybody ever would have called that. Uh, Austin, just... Austin Taker, Sean are all ahead of him, but Sean is about to turn. I mean, Sean is already a heel to a chunk of the audience, and he's about to go full heel. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking of Sean as a baby face here. He's yeah. definitely a tweener. Scumbag. <laughs> Um, Helmsley immediately goes for the door, but Mankind cuts him off. Uh, Mankind works him over. He goes for the mandible claw, but China jumps up on the cage and chokes him with her weightlifting belt through the cage. China interfered a ton here, and I think it was the highlight of the match other than the finish. I don't think enough is made of how fucking cool China is. This version the- of China, when she's still super jacked, is awesome. Like, Eventually, when they make her more of a character and they want to, like, sexualize her more and stuff like that, like, that's a fine character in a very different way. But just this badass bodyguard, who is the only reason Triple H wins any of his matches. I just So much heat. He's got a woman who beats up his opponents for him because he can't do it. 
and she whoops their asses. It's great. Mankind climbs up the cage. China is supposed to low blow him, but like she gets the angle wrong and just ass punches him. Punches him right in his butthole. (laughs) Yeah, right in his ass and knocks him back into the cage. I mean, still effective. (laughs) Helmsley superplexes him off the cage. I think they should have done this. This was too early to go to this. This should have been later in the match. Like, there are a lot of different ways to do superplexes. But instead of, like, going up to the top rung of the cage and going from there, like, he's still on the other side of the cage when they start it. So, like, literally, he, like, Helmsy, like, jerks him over the top, and I'm like, it it looked dangerous to me. Yeah. A number of things in this match were pretty dangerous. Uh, Helmsy is in control for a while. Mankind comes back and suplexes him and, like, hangs him upside down from the cage, which is the old Rick Rude spot. I don't know if Triple H had strong enough abs to do sit-ups the way Rick Rude would. No, and that's that's unfortunate because that's the best part of the Rick Rude spot. Uh, they both fight on the top rope. Helmsley gets crotched on the top rope, which he sells better than, like, anyone in wrestling. God. Um, he's so underrated, even at this point. When he's, like, not in command of all of his powers yet. He just felt fucking good. Helmsley gets his foot stuck in the ropes. Mankind crawls for the door. China slams it shut on his head. This is absolutely brutal as one of the bars hits Foley square in the forehead. He doesn't get his hand up. Yeah, this is not the chain link fence cage. Please remember that. Like, that, you could, like, slam on people all day and not hurt them. That's fine. A bar hits him in the fucking side of his forehead. Yeah, this had to be a concussion. Sheesh. Uh, She throws a chair into the ring. Mankind then catapults Helmsley into the cage wall, which knocks China off the cage. And he double-armed DDTs Triple H on the chair. He goes to climb out. He gets all the way up over the cage, but he stops. Uh, This is an all-time great finish. He takes his mask off, he climbs back up, he rips open his shirt, which is supposed to expose that, like, he's got, like, a... He couldn't get a dude love tattoo on his chest, but he tried to draw it on with magic marker, but it just, like, smeared off from his sweat. So this this part didn't work, but he rips open his shirt and then does an elbow drop from the top of the cage. Shades of Jimmy Superfly Snooka, who he hitchhiked all the way to Madison Square <laughs> Garden to see for the famous Superfly dive. This is amazing. It could have been improved a little bit had, say, any of there been any visual indicator of what he was going for, because it really wasn't. Yeah. And, and he doesn't really do like the superfly like hand signal or any of that stuff. Like all of that probably would have helped. But still, just as a moment, the idea that in this moment, as mankind's about to win, like dude love awakens in him. And it's just like, this is our moment. The one we've always been waiting for. We're going to fly like Snooka. That's pretty cool. It's very cool. Um, did I think China also screwed up her timing and jumped in the ring to dri- drag Triple H out at the wrong time? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. So th- they race for the finish. Mankind climbs back up the side of the cage as China is trying to drag Helmsley out the door. Mankind drops off the wall to the floor to win the match. You know, great match. Love the finish. The crowd was not as into... They popped to the entrances, but they were not super into the match. 
Yeah, they they weren't super into the finish either, and I'm not really sure why. Like, because it was still they just didn't get it. Yeah, but also it's just an impressive spot. Like, you think they would have just reacted to like, oh man, cool elbow drop off the top. That's neat. No, yeah. not really. Three hundred pound dude. Yeah, it just I don't know was what it was. Mankind is down and out on the floor, and then the dude love theme starts to play, and it revives him and he gets up and like dance struts his way to the back my head canon is that austin plays the music <laughs> all right so they got to take the cage down so they got to buy about 10 minutes here uh what follows is a rather bizarre segment somehow chris christie appearing at that wrestlemania was not the first time a governor of new jersey appeared on a wwf pay-per-view because here todd pettengill brings out new jersey governor christine todd whitman um they also bring out gorilla monsoon and the headbangers so the backstory here um Sometime in the late 80s or early 90s, New Jersey, like, changed their laws and started taxing wrestling events at a higher rate than concerts. There was, like, a special sporting event tax they had to pay. This was not, like, uncommon. Some other states with athletic commissions had this. But, you know, Vince, in protest, stopped doing TV in New Jersey. So, like, SummerSlam 89 was in New Jersey. This was the first pay-per-view in New Jersey since then because Vince was able to convince the legislature to repeal the tax with the help of Governor Christy Todd Whitman, who, you know, at the time was considered a rising star in the Republican Party and a possible president. Uh, Didn't work out that way. Pretty sure she's a Democrat now, but, you know. That's pretty the funny. path, <laughs> the path not taken. She was a you know liberal pro-choice Republican, and those folks did not end up lasting in the party. In fact, even 1997 was kind of late for somebody like her uh, to be a Republican. But Vince really seems to be all in on her here, as he's putting her over as a future president on commentary. One of the funny, like weirdest parts of this is just the simple fact that, like, ostensibly this is an entire segment about how happy Vince is that a, a local, like, government figure has not decided not to tax WWE. And we're, like, supposed to get, like, really yes. excited about that? Like, fuck you, who cares? Yeah, they bring out the Headbangers and Gorilla Monsoon, who I think are both from New Jersey, and they present her with the WWF Championship belt. I think it's the actual belt. I so think it I, is. She didn't get to keep it, I don't think, unless they made a new one. Um but yeah, it's like they say, like, she's the world champion of cutting taxes. And like, I wonder as a fan live in the arena, like, what are you thinking? Like, all right. Uh, she was mostly booed. I mean, they just broke kind of a rule here is they don't normally have political figures involved in their shows. Like Chris Christie was an exception, but he was there in a very non like He was there with like Hurricane Sandy relief. Right. Like that was a little more reasonable. It's also this, like the peak of his actual popularity too. Like it's not politicians will always get booed in situations like a yeah. wrestling show. Always they should. Fail. That's how it should work. Yeah. They're not supposed to be popular. Uh this show is Todd Pettengill's final WWF pay-per-view appearance, and they send him out with a doozy of a segment later that I can't wait to talk about. But um, thoughts on Todd Pettengill? I I feel like I came into this podcast like shitting on him, but I've grown to respect him over time. Yeah, it's one of those things, like, we've mentioned this a couple times, but, like, both of us have had people 
who like over the course of the podcast, we've utterly changed our opinion about. And he's one of mine, too. As a kid, I thought he was like the biggest fucking weirdo scumbag in the entire world. I had no fucking time of day for goof ass Todd Pettengill. And now I'm just like, man, he had jack shit to work with. And he just always tried his best, you know? Great pitch, man. Oh, like, amazing. I think he sold stuff about as well as anybody I've ever seen. He was he's great. He's just Don West. It's yeah. like younger in WWE. Yeah, he's here's the insane thing. He was like <laughs> 31 here. Wow. He's gone on to a very successful career in like New York radio. Good for him. I'm glad he's doing well. It's weird. I don't think he's ever, ever appeared again in the WWF. Like you would think. Put this man in the Hall of Fame. Bring him back for a nostalgia. Did they? They didn't bring him back for like the NXT in your houses, did they? I don't think so. Yeah, like that would have been. I mean, like I think he'd get a great nostalgia pop. Definitely, at least from like people like us who would actually know who he was. <laughs> Unfortunately, he also did his work during the most least watched yes. time in their history. Uh, they show Tiger Jeet Singh and his son Tiger Ali <laughs> Singh in the crowd. Unfortunately, Tiger Ali Singh will soon debut in the WWF and Oof. yeah, not be a very good wrestler or manager. Nope. Wait, you didn't like Lowdown? You don't get down no. with the Lowdown? I do kind of like Lowdown in their track pants. Hell yeah. Uh, then they show clips of the SummerSlam beach party from earlier in the day. This looked kind of fun. A lot of people there. I actually love it when they would do stuff like this. Like even when it would look goofy, like I at least love that they tried. And this Steve one actually Austin on a beach is a really funny image. Yes. There's just some people that you never think of as like relaxing at all. Yeah. Like they used to do all of these videos of like wrestlers juxtaposed in everyday situations and how funny that was. And that wouldn't work now. Cause if you like put Kofi Kingston on a beach, you'd be like, all right, well he seems pretty relaxed. It's natural. Him. Yeah. But like when you put like The Undertaker and Steve Austin on a beach, it's like, what are these two monsters doing here? Uh, then we've got Goldust versus Brian Pillman. Um, real life blending into the storyline here. Pillman had dated, you know, Terry Runnels, Marlena uh, back, you know, in the day when she was a WCW makeup artist. Don't think he was the only guy who dated her. Yeah. Um, um. The entire Runnels family, unfortunately, had to had to go Yikes. there. Yikes! Yeah. Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> um. So the, I mean, they have this feud basically because Pillman is talking shit about Marlena. Uh, stipulation again here is that Pillman will have to wear a dress on Raw tomorrow if he loses. Um. This was uncomfortable to watch. Yes. Pillman can barely walk. He should not have been allowed. Like they should not have been letting him wrestle here. I just don't understand why he's not just a manager at this point. Because, like, he never lost his ability to cut amazing promos. Oh, man. Great he's presence. got a ton of heat. Everybody hates him. Like, just make him, like, the manager of Bret Hart. Like, yeah, that there just would makes be total sense. Way more heat if nobody ever got to beat him up instead of him actually getting in the ring and wrestling. Yes. Because he can't so, win matches and be credible because he can't wrestle enough to be credible. <laughs> Can't do any of the things he used to do. His ankle was fused after he had that terrible Hummer accident in 1996. And like his, it, his leg or his ankle didn't heal right. So they had to re-break it and do the surgery. So like, it was horrible. He never should have wrestled again. And like, 
we always talk about like the what if of Brian Pillman and like the what if is obviously like what if he actually could have wrestled during this era. And obviously that would have been awesome. But another great what if is like what if they just made him a non-wrestler? What if he had had the opportunity to make this money without having to destroy his body? Maybe that could have been good for him. Probably could have been a commentator. He did some commentary. He was doing commentary on Shotgun Saturday night. Literally, he's got an electric presence without ever needing to be in a ring. Uh, it's a bad match. There's a lot of botches. You know, Pillman just isn't with it. Gold Dust doesn't seem to be on his game either. Um, it seems incredible that we are only like halfway through 1997, and Goldberg seems or Gold Dust seems absolutely washed. Like he's got nothing left to uh, offer whatsoever. Terrible shape. They've turned him babyface, which I is not like I didn't think that was really the right move for him at this time. Not if you were not if you were going to keep it. if you were going to turn him face, I think you had to turn him back into Dustin Rhodes. Like trying to make Gold Dust a babyface was a really weird move. It just it's bizarre to me that they refuse to to let him go back to being Dustin Rhodes, and so they do like the bizarre like faith angle thing. Yeah, whatever the fuck that was. <laughs> Uh, the finish is totally botched. Goldust tries for a sunset flip, but Pillman, like, get, like his leg gives out and he collapses. And then Marlena takes forever to get in position as they're, like, literally, like, yelling at her to come do the thing. She hits Pillman with her purse and Goldust rolls him up for the pin. Uh, a bad, sad, hard match to watch. Brutal. Like... There's a lot on this show that's not very good. Like, there's a lot in this company to be excited about. There's a lot on this show that is not excellent. Um, it's almost this is, 50. This show is almost 50-50, like, great stuff and terrible stuff. Yeah, there's nothing in between. There's nothing that's just, like, passably good. Like, if you think about, like, the way that, like, Raws are these days, where everything's just kind of mediocre. Everything's okay. Yeah. yeah, there's nothing on this show that is okay. There's yeah. only excellent and terrible and we've got terrible next because we've got the Godwins against the Legion of Doom. Uh, this one stems from Henry suffering a legitimate broken neck on a botched Doomsday device a couple months before this. He took the Doomsday device, came down on his head, cracked his neck. It's a dangerous move. It's amazing that more people weren't yeah. hurt by that move, which is not a safe move by any stretch the, of the, the imagination. The way people would take the bump is insane, where they would fall off and like do a flip instead of just flat back. And, yeah, just fucking looks, flat back. Yeah, but it looks so much more impressive when you do the flip. I know. But like literally just the way that Animal would perform the move, it's just like, all right, here's the clothesline, and now I just fling just the motherfucker behind me. Yeah. Uh, the Godwins come down rocking a Confederate flag. They are uh, you know, heel pig farmers now, which... I do think they were better heels than baby faces because the baby face character was wretched, but they're not they, good. Anything. Yeah. This character should not exist. They're not a good, ta- they're not a good tag team. Like nothing about this. And LOD are such a shell. It's they're kind of hard to watch at this point too. They're such a shell of their former selves. They're a fucking joke. Like there's no other way to put it. Like there's, Nothing about them that anybody would even conceivably want to see. It's crazy. Like, the fact that they have Sonny there just so people won't, like, get bored and boo them is wild. Why do you even have them then? Uh, It's not a good match. They go about 10 minutes. Uh, They hit the LOD, hit the spike pile driver on Henry to get the win to kind of further the neck angle. Nothing much, nothing much to say about that. It wasn't good. 
the number of spike pile drivers that are a part of this company around this time is pretty fucking crazy when you consider how much how absolutely well, it's about to happen yeah. yeah like everybody in this company their secondary finisher is the spike pile driver all right Next, we have a very bizarre segment. It's giveaway time. They have a (sighs) casket with a million dollars in cash in it. There's a hundred keys on a board, and you get to pick one, and then you try to unlock the casket with it. And if you picked the right key, you unlock the casket, and you win the million dollars. So you have a one in a hundred chance to win. They have some kid here that they brought from wherever. Yeah. Um. They have some old guy who they've also brought from wherever. What was I, the kid's the kid's last name was something really funny. It was like Chad Dick or something. Yeah, it was pretty fucking good. Yeah. And then <clears throat> they're also gonna call and do like a McMahon's Millions. That part. <laughs> That's the terror. I mean, like, if it's just a couple people going to turn the key, sure. Okay, I guess. Like, it won't take too long. Yeah, the guy for, they had a guy from Indiana who chooses number 13. And I think they showed he was, like, on the front page of the local paper because he got picked to do this. Yes. That Which was is, great. In theory, that's the whole reason you do something like this, yeah. right? It's just a, a fun little thing. That was endearing. And there's no, if I understand the way this works correctly, there's really no risk to the company because you just buy insurance. You you put up like 15 or 20 grand in insurance and the, the like the company pays the million, like the insurance company pays the million dollars if somebody actually wins. Here's the thing. Do you feel like they rigged this? That would be, that's against the law. Like, that's really dangerous. You can get in some big trouble rigging a lottery. I mean, that's true. It's just, wouldn't it have been so much better for them if somebody had won this fucking money? Oh, yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because spoiler alert, this is a 25-minute segment where nobody wins the fucking prize. And uh, at the end, they're just like, well, that sucks. Oh, well. So Pettengill goes to call another potential winner. Uh, and on. they we don't should, answer. We should, yeah, we should mention first that Sonny and Sable are out there. Yeah, Sonny very, slays it here. Sonny's awesome. Sable's just kind of there. Sonny has, like, this unbelievable bubbly charisma. Yes. At one point, like, Todd Pennygill's trying to read the number, and she puts it over her tits and just slowly lowers it down so he's staring directly at her chest. Yes. Very funny. Uh, Pettengill calls another number. They don't answer. Vince is like, oh, he's like, maybe he should dial the phone a little bit slower. Vince is, like, audibly uncomfortable while this whole segment is going this on. This segment is dying. Again, it's they, and then they somehow did this ten years later with McMahon's Millions, and it was even worse. Uh, the next number is disconnected. Like, holy shit, we are dying here. The next one is the funniest thing that I've ever seen on WWF television. So here's what happens. They dial the number. A guy finally answers. Pettengill is so relieved. He's not going to get fired by Vince. Everything's going to be okay. Hey, buddy, are you watching SummerSlam? The man says, no. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, oh, no. And then he covers by saying his cable company doesn't carry it. Which is such bullshit. (laughs) This motherfucker. Then he guesses a number. He fails. He yeah. gets nothing. The end. Yeah. 
nobody wins. And then they pull, they grab what they grab the right key and they open the casket and show like, okay, it actually could have worked. Yeah. It would have been a lot better if somebody actually won the money. Like at least with McMahon's millions, people were actually winning money once they finally answered the phone. Right. At least there was no, no such thing as a ring back tone yet. So nobody could hit him with the nobody fucking got, Rick nobody roll. Rick rolled him. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we're going to do SummerSlam 2008 in a couple weeks, and we will talk a lot about McMahon's millions then. Just the funniest fucking thing in wrestling history to me. Uh, next up for the European Championship, we've got the British Bulldog defending against Ken Shamrock. Uh, Bulldog has promised that he'll eat a can of dog food if he loses here. Um, man, I just every time we watch Shamrock, we have to talk about this, but like, what a badass he looks like. Just looks like an absolute star coming down to the ring. I mean, academically, I know that Ken Shamrock must be on most of the steroids in the entire world oh, at this yeah. point. Because he is, like, astronomically huge. Silly jacked. Uh, he has the best physique on the roster. Like, who is number two? It's, it's a not, long gap. I don't even know if anybody else belongs in the conversation, oh, to be honest with uh, you. He looks incredible, and he just has this dangerous energy to him. Like, everybody knows this guy could go off any second. Just watching him walk to the ring. Yeah. Like, he's just, like, propelled Storms to the ring. It's like he has an internal spring powering him that just constantly wound impossibly tight. I, I just, I love this character so much. And it's not just the character, but, like, the way that he plays it. It's just perfect. It's like the perfect hybrid of like this person and like the kind of character that you can get them to play. I love it. Yeah. This is Shamrock's only, he's really not had a lot of matches to this point, but he's fine here. Like I thought he was good. Um, starts fast with a belly to belly suplex, blocks a hip toss, rolls through into a leg lock. Uh, Bulldog gets control, like works some slow offense Bulldog hits Shamrock with a couple low blows that the referee doesn't see. And then Bulldog taunts Shamrock with the dog food, which makes Shamrock snap. He smashes, like shoot smashes, this can of dog food on the back of Bulldog's head. This could have hurt him really bad. Like, part of the appeal of this Ken Shamrock character is that it doesn't seem to be that far off from the actual person. I don't know if that's actually what Ken Shamrock is like or not, but when he starts going into this character, people get really actually hurt. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think he was one of those guys who gets so fired up, he'd just start hurting people. And it's like, that only helps the gimmick, though I can't imagine it made him very fun to work with. Then there's a period, like, after he does that to Bulldog, the referees start to get involved, so he just starts belly-to-back suplexing yes. everyone inside. Everybody. And, like, when he would do it, you've seen a million people just, like, pick guy up, put guy down. This motherfucker would, like, yank guys yeah. into the air. Doesn't matter how much you weighed, you were going up immediately. And then you just, like, toss your ass on your head. He does yeah. one to Gerald Briscoe, which he should have oh gone to jail for. Yeah, he hits Patterson, Briscoe, bunch of referees. The crowd is just going wild for him. This is... A super well done angle. Even Austin doesn't really get his hands on authority figures like this at this point. Like this is yeah. really Austin as far hasn't as, really st Austin hasn't started doing that yet. As far as I'm aware, this is like the first time I'd ever seen this happen. Where like in this way, where a guy just starts beating the shit out yeah. of every authority figure. You could have sent a hundred refs. He would have destroyed them all. 
then there's a quick interview with Shawn Michaels. He kind of sarcastically promises to be an unbiased referee tonight and says, you know, nothing will get past him. He, this is the annoying thing about Shawn Michaels. Unbelievably brilliant performer. Abs- once the bell rings, he's absolutely capable of telling these intricate stories. But when they put him on the mic, in no way does he put over what his story is for this match. No, he's just a dickhead. He's <laughs> supposed to convey, man, it sucks that I got to like call it right down the middle for Brett. I really hate that son of a bitch. But whatever, I got to do what I got to do. It's It sucks, but I'm going to call it right down the middle no matter what. That's what he's supposed to say. All he says is just like, hey, man, oh, yeah, I fucking call right down the middle. Yeah, hell yeah. Oh, next up, we've got an eight-man tag match between Los Boricuas uh, and the Disciples of uh, What did we do to deserve this? Jesus Christ, Steve. I did not realize this, actually, until we watched the show. And it makes total sense. I don't know why it never occurred to me that Los Boricuas and the Disciples of Apocalypse were splinter factions from the Nation of Domination after they kicked out the non-black guys. I didn't yeah. realize that. Of course they were. I mean, it makes total sense now, but I just kind of thought that they just decided to do a bunch of random stables. Yeah. Yeah. So the night after King of the Ring, uh, Farouk kicked out Crush and Savio, saying that, you know, he's going to make the nation a lot better and blacker. Um, they both, yeah, form their own stables. So Savio brings in all his Puerto Rican buddies, Jesus Castillo, Miguel Perez, and Jose Estrada. And then... Crush brings in the Harris twins and Brian Lee to form a biker gang who actually get ridiculously over because this crowd loves a bunch of white bikers fighting black and Puerto Rican guys. I wonder what Vince thought was going to happen because I Vince McMahon, while he is, I think is fair to say racist in his own privileged white way. I don't think thought that the fans were going to necessarily identify with the bikers in the way that they did. Because I don't think Vince really knows his audience and never has. Um, but what you've basically done is create a situation where you've given all of your racist-ass fans an opportunity to root for literal neo-Nazi biker gang people yeah. against while they fight race wars in your ring. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, bad. <laughs> and it all sucks. Every Everything these guys are involved in is terrible. Let me, let's talk about Los Bariquas for a second, who always get lost in the discussion. We always talk about like, oh, hey, look at these actual Nazis over here. And oh, hey, look at the Nation of Domination who are super talented and actually could have been a thing, but they get sucked into this crap. Los Bariquas is the most ill-conceived stable of all time. They are unfathomably talented. All of those guys kick complete ass. Savio Vega is amazing. Especially Savio. But yeah, they're all good. But they all they make, suck in this role. And they make them dress identically. Why? Like, it's not it's not even like the bikers who are all, all wearing, like, random biker stuff. They're wearing the same pants, the same jacket, yes. the same undershirt, the same fedora, the same sunglasses. They wrestle. They literally wrestle. And I guess the idea is that they're supposed to look like Cuban drug dealers. And, like, yeah. that's the kind of vibe they're going for. But they don't. Because they were these goofy unitards underneath. Yeah. It's the worst look, the worst stable I've ever seen. And it murders Sabio Vega. Like, he's done after this. There's nothing left to come back from. Man, I hate Los Bariquas. 
Yeah, nothing really happens here. They brawl for a couple minutes, and then the nation come down through the crowd. That was actually cool. Hell yeah, it was. And the then, nation kicks ass. Yeah, Ahmed is still with the nation, which I didn't remember. I didn't think he ever appeared with them again after he blew his knee out. But he's you know limping out here in his giant knee brace. And uh, something terrible happens. As on the floor, Chains and Ahmed start fighting. Ahmed goes to Pearl River Plunge Chains. But, like, halfway through, I think his knee gives out, and he just kind of pile drives him instead, which is insanely dangerous. Yeah, he doesn't just stop doing the dangerous move that he's doing, which the Pearl River Plunge is already arguably the most dangerous move anyone's ever performed in the hands of Ahmed Johnson. No, 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 no. He's got to go one further. (laughs) He's got to literally just be like, well, I'm going to put you down on your head one way or another. Might as well just do it like this. Yeah. I, I think he aggra- aggra- aggravated his knee injury here because the next night they had the nation turn on him and that rode him out for a while. Poor Ahmed. Yeah. I think Always he would have gotten real. I mean, he got a ton of heat when he joined the nation. I think that was going to work. I definitely think that was going to work. Yeah. They wind up just basically like doing a do over with the rock that gets the rock, the rock over like instead. gangbusters. Yeah. yeah. Which works out better for everybody. Yeah. I don't even know who won this match. I, I had no idea. I think it was DQ, but who the hell cares? Not even slightly. Next up, we've got our Intercontinental Championship match. Owen Hart takes on Steve Austin. To reiterate, Austin has pledged to kiss Owen's ass if he doesn't beat him for the Intercontinental title. What is the origin of the kiss my ass thing? What do you think? When do you think the first kiss my ass match was? This is the first one I remember. I think yeah. Vince is. I think Vince loves it. Is my I, guess. I think Vince has always loved it, but as with all Vince ideas, it's stolen from somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> like I don't know who did the. It's probably a Memphis thing. That sounds like does, a Jerry Lawler. This whole show feels very Memphis, doesn't it? Yeah, you can really tell. Like when Jim Cornette's on the writing team, yeah. Because there's just always like a little bit of Memphis in every show. Uh, Owen gets a lot of heat, and then backstage, Michael Cole tries to interview Austin as he's walking to the ring, but Austin blows him off, and they do the tracking shot where they follow Austin through the curtain, which is really cool. You should be, as a wrestling promotion, contractually obligated one time per show to do a tracking shot of somebody walking through the backstage area and then out into the arena because it is the fucking coolest thing every single time. This one, where we literally watch Austin, like, walking in from the outside already in his wrestling gear, as if he had just, like, walked from the last town in his gear and just gotten here in time for his match. And he's walking up. Michael Cole walks up and tries to do an interview. Austin literally, like, shoves him away and just, like, you think I got time to talk to you, you piece of trash? Yeah. And then pours, like, a bottle of water on himself and drinks some and storms through the curtain as the glass shatters. And, like, a lot of people, you can visibly see them, like, change. I've noticed this when you watch a lot of people, like, do that walk through the back. Like, they're not really in character until they hit the curtain, right? Even when, like, you're supposed to be, like, maybe you did a promo beforehand or stuff, but you just see a change in them when they hit the curtain. Not Stone Cold Steve Austin. From the moment this camera starts rolling until the moment he hits the ring, he is stone fucking cold. Yeah. It's beautiful. 
Uh, Owen jumps Austin before the bell and takes out his knee. He's able to wrap the knee around the ring post, but Austin comes back with the Fez press. Uh, Austin works on Owen's arm for a couple minutes until Owen turns the tide. He keeps biting Owen's finger, Austin's fingers and twisting them, which is something I've only ever seen him do here. The announcers point out he doesn't care if he gets disqualified because it's if Austin doesn't win the title, he has to kiss his ass. So a DQ is just fine for Owen. I didn't even really think about that, but that's yeah. a great point. Austin comes back with a stun gun. Owen goes for a Hurricane Rana attempt, but Austin counters it with a power bomb and then clotheslines Owen out to the floor. Um, Austin tries to walk out, or Owen tries to walk out, but Austin runs him down and drags him back to the ring. Um, Owen catches Austin with a neck breaker to take control of the match. He hits an elbow drop from the top rope. Uh, Austin comes back with a cross body from the middle rope, which I think that's the only time I can ever remember him doing that. When the fuck would he ever do a crossbody? That's, That's fucking crazy. He, they both brought their work in boots tonight. This match is really only remembered for the ending, but this was a hell of a match. Man, it's they tear the house down. This had Austin never broken his neck. Oh you can only God. imagine like the kind of matches he would have been having through the Attitude Era when he was the top guy. Because his matches were still good, but he couldn't do that. Like he's doing crazy bumping here. He's feeding. He's coming off like he's doing all this stuff he could not do after his neck injury. Like after his neck injury, he could really just punch and kick. In a company with Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels in it, there's an argument to be made that he could have been the best worker in this company. That's fucking wild. And with this character that he could pretty much do whatever he wanted from night to night with. It, it's just awesome. Like, we missed out on so much, Steve. Owen hits a German suplex and bridges into the pin, but Austin kicks out at two. JR then talks about um, Austin's history of neck problems as Owen is putting on a camel clutch. That's quite a foreshadow, but I think he knew that they were going to use a pile driver as a false finish here. So he wanted to really set that up. Yeah, that's clearly the premise of the match. Like, Owen's trying to work the neck, right? Um, I think that's why Owen decides to do the unique move that he tries to do at the end of this match, which would have fed perfectly into the match if it made any fucking sense whatsoever. Owen hits Austin with a DDT for another two count. He goes for a sleeper. Austin gets out with a jawbreaker, which I always hate when he does that because I don't understand how that's different than the stunner. It's just the stunner! (laughs) Like, is the stunner supposed to be the neck he's hitting? But it, the, in real reality, it's his jo- it's the jaw he's dropping on his shoulder. Yes. And then we get to what this match is infamous for. Austin lifts Owen. Owen slips out. He gets Austin in a tilt-a-whirl, and he drops down for a sit-down pile driver. <laughs> he doesn't get Austin's neck between his legs, so his neck is totally exposed. And it gets compressed as he drops all his weight on it. It's just an awful spot, super dangerous and irresponsible. I can't believe he did this. Owen Hart is a legendary wrestler and absolutely unquestionably beloved by literally every single person in the wrestling industry. Steve Austin has come out multiple times, said that he doesn't blame Owen, that it was just an accident. All of that's true. And they can also be true that this was a reprehensibly shitty decision on his part. Absolutely asinine that he would even try to do this 
busted ass horrible move that to my knowledge has only been performed twice in wrestling history and resulted in a broken neck both times was the what was the other time chono did this Chono is the thing do that broke his Austin, neck. Or Austin, did Austin do this to Chono? Yes. This backwards? It's That's the same so move. Weird. That is so weird. Yes. That was back in like 92 or something like that, early 90s. It's this bizarre karma that right <laughs> when Chono was about to become a huge megastar in New Japan, Austin does it to him. And then it happens to Austin six years later. I mean, this is one of the most dangerous moves I've ever seen. Like, this is, it's like the Emerald Flosion. There's no way to control it. Yeah. Like, you're just assuming that you can feel where his head is. And, but there's a ways to make this a little bit safer. If he had fallen back with the pile driver instead of just sitting out flat, that would have protected Austin more. But it's not just the weight of Austin's body, but all of Owen's weight that goes on him here. I. Austin is so fortunate he wasn't paralyzed here. All that weight right on his vertebrae. Like, that is the absolute nightmare. And here's the the clear thing, is that they ban pile drivers after this, which is fucking stupid, because that's not the danger. You can do dangerous pile drivers, obviously. It has resulted in broken necks other times in the past. Taz's neck was broken on a pile driver. It can happen if you're not being safe. But there's a lot of things put into place to make sure that you don't break the guy's neck. You put his head between your is between your legs tightly between your thighs right when you're starting the move. Yeah. The and other the guy can put his hands down to give a little more cushion. If you like do the tombstone pile driver, for example, yeah. as long as the guy's not too tall, the, it's completely based on like, well, Taker's knees are going to hit before your head does. Yeah. So you don't have anything to worry about. Easy for Taker to do because he's six foot eight. Owen yeah. is like six foot one. Owen is like. 220 pounds he's not nearly as strong as taker and the way he's trying to do this taker gets him up on his shoulders and like gets him in position and holds him there and does it he does it slowly and it milks the crowd owen here literally gets austin up in a -a tilt-a-whirl and just sits right the fuck down yes and like the normal pile driver is designed for you to be faced the other way so that as the guy doing it falls you fall towards him like you fall backwards, you fall backwards too. So like you're taking it on the back of your head if any of your head hits. Not the top. This only affects the top of his fucking brain. So literally it just stacks his spine up. That's like, the nightmare. There's no move in wrestling I've ever seen that's this dangerous. Like you are safer jumping off of like a 10-story building onto some barbed wire than this. Because at least there's a way that you could protect yourself. Austin has no means of protecting himself here. He doesn't even know where he is while this move is going on. He can't put his arms down because he doesn't know where the ground is. He's just staring at Owen Hart's taint as his neck gets broken. Yeah, it's a so nightmare. According, according to Austin, you know they were going over the match, and like Austin suggested that they do something resembling the spot that, you know, they do a pile driver, that it'd be a reversal. Owen hit him with the pile driver. Austin says he told Owen to drop to his knees. Like he told him twice, like, Hey, you're going to drop to your knees. Right. And Owen was just like, no, no, I'll just, I'll sit down with it. That's the way I do my pile driver. And like Austin either thought he was joking or like, just, you know, kind of trust him. Like it's Owen Hart. Like, you know, there's no way he's going to hurt me, but God, this was a bad decision. And that's the funny thing, is that if anybody other than Owen had told him this, Owen, Austin would have just been like, no, fuck you, we're not doing that. But, like, you trust Owen Hart. 
Like, of course you do, right? This is one of the worst things. Like, And again, in a long career of making basically no mistakes, injuring no one, like being perfect and technical and amazing and beloved by everyone. One moment, Owen Hart makes an unquestionably shitty decision to do this move. And he knew that he had to have known that Austin's head was not locked between his thighs. Like he does it quickly, but not that quickly. And he does it anyway. And he does it to the only thing keeping this company in business. It is an unfathomably bad decision on his part. And it's amazing that he did not. You can tell how beloved he must be because there are no repercussions to him for this. Told him to drop to his knees, but I wouldn't insist on sitting down. Joking, like just trusted him because you know it's Owen Hart. There's no way he's gonna hurt him. And of course, you would trust Owen Hart. He's fucking Owen Hart. Like honestly, of all the people that you would ever think wouldn't hurt you, Owen Hart's got to be like near at the top of the damn list. But like for all the things that he had ever done in his entire career. Owen literally has never made a mistake a single time that I'm aware of in any match. But this one time that he does it, he takes out the only thing keeping this company in business. It's a horrendous bad thing for him. And it's only a a fact that he's so beloved that nothing bad comes to him for doing it. Yeah. I mean, Austin was salty with him and Austin felt like Owen should have called him. Like it sounds like literally Owen never called him, which is just, Feels like a horrible breach of wrestling etiquette. For sure. It just feels like the basics here that, like, you send a gift, you send a note, you call to check on the guy. It's amazing how many times in wrestling history that that's come back to be, like, a big thing. Like, that was, like, the whole motivation that Mick used against The Rock. Like, he still held on to that, like, 20 years later. Yeah, just feels basic, but, you know. I understand that's going to be a hard conversation. I'm sure Owen felt terrible. I'm sure he was incredibly guilty, but it's just like, you got to make that phone call. Absolutely. Um, Okay. So to reset, Austin has just been dropped on his head. He cannot move. Like his body is on fire and he's paralyzed. Um, He said he was not like fuzzy or knocked out. He was very like coherent and knew exactly what was going on, but he could not move. So he tells Owen to get off him. He tells Earl Hebner, like, I can't move, like tell him to stay away from me. Owen buys time taunting the crowd. Like he tries to start a Canada chant. He says that, Austin's going to have to kiss his ass. Like, he's just buying time. This feels like it goes on forever. It's, like, maybe a minute and a half. But, like, that is an eternity for one guy to just be laying there in the ring and the other guy to be buying time. Also, Owen Hart is uniquely not suited for this role of trying to buy time from the crowd. He has not played to the crowd for one fucking second for this entire match. So him trying to play to them only makes it clear that something is very wrong. I mean, under normal circumstances, you would like Owen would just pin him or better yet, like yeah. the referee would just stop the match because Austin's hurt and no big deal. You can do the title change another time. But because of this kiss my ass stipulation, you cannot have Austin lose. He has to win the belt here. 
And so he has to somehow find a way to pin Owen, even though he can't even stand up. What follows is maybe the greatest act of sheer willpower in the history of modern mankind. As the man with ostensibly a broken neck and shattered vertebrae in his back gets up to his knees, grabs Owen's tights, and manages to get up high enough to, like, actually perform a pin. I... I, watching it, I was like literally had my jaw open, even though I knew it was already going to happen. Because like when you remember how bad his next condition was, he should not have been able to rise himself up. Like it doesn't make sense that he was even able to like use his motor functions the way that he did. Yeah. So Austin very weakly manages to roll Owen up like Owen does most of the work and uh, like Owen's shoulder, like it's you know it's bad. Owen's shoulders come up off the mat, but you know what could anybody do here? Like Austin, I, what I would think of the feeling Austin would have here is, I've, of course, thankfully never been paralyzed, but I've had sleep paralysis a few times where uh-huh. I woke up but couldn't move. Like <laughs> you've ever had that where you're just so desperately oh, trying yes. to move yourself but you can't? Yes, yes. Yes. So Austin somehow manages to overcome that, rolls up Owen, pins him. Owen kicks out right after three, which Austin said hurt and like really could have damaged his neck. Yeah, he doesn't just kick out. He like kicks out with stank on it. And it's like, what the fuck are you doing? Another shitty thing to do. Like when he kicks out, he like literally pushes his neck away. It's like, I, I don't. Owen Hart has been one particular kind of person for his entire career, and I don't know what the fuck is going on on this night, but I don't feel like I've ever seen him do any of this shit any other match he ever contested. I don't know what's going on in his head. Yeah, I mean, the pile driver was a really bad mistake, and I think it was just a tough a tough spot, and he kind of panicked. And, like, yeah, I mean, you kick out on four at four on a cradle, but, like, that's not the time to do it. Like, no, just Should have stayed down. Loss just gently rolled over and gotten out of the ring. And I do wonder yeah. if part of the problem is when Austin told him to stay away, Owen doesn't really know what's knows what's wrong. You don't really see like the referee communicate with him. So maybe he doesn't know that oh, Austin's neck is as bad as it is. I don't know, but then it only gets worse because okay. in come the refs and they present Austin with the belt. They make him get up on yeah. his feet and then pose with it. Oh, yeah. Austin picks up the belt and then drops it because he doesn't have the strength to hold it. And I'm it's sure it hurt like a 40-pound belt they yeah. give a guy with a broken neck to hold up. I mean, they 100% should have, like, put him on the board, put yes. him in a neck brace and stretchered him out. But, you know, that doesn't fit his character. He's the toughest SOB. He feels like he like they should have just gotten the camera off the ring go somewhere follow you know tell owen like complain to the camera improvise a promo but get the camera away from the ring and put austin on a board and get him out of there safely i don't know what you have to do send fucking Shawn michaels down to super kick owen hart like yeah. just do anything to to distract from the fact that this man who your company literally depends upon literally there's nothing else in your company. You reasonably assume that you might be out Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, and Undertaker. You might have to cut all of these guys soon. The only guy under a cheap contract who the fans care about is this man who just got his neck broken, and you're just fucking with him. There's no question that what they do makes it worse. 
There's no question. So, I mean, it was a great match with a very unfortunate finish. I think it was going to go several minutes longer um, before the injury. So, I mean, they were headed for like a five-star match here if they had had a good finish. There's a good chance that aside from like the match with Brett at WrestleMania, this could have been the match of Owen's career. Yeah. Like it was on the way to being like a defining performance in his life. And for it to end like this, I mean, I can understand how his brain would have just been all sorts of fucked up with like how confusing that moment would have been. But man, everybody makes all the wrong decisions here. So Austin went to the emergency room. I don't remember how he got there. I don't think he took the ambulance. I think somebody gave him a ride. They they do an x-ray, MRI, whatever. They diagnose him with a stinger, which is not correct. No. Like, he had a bruised spinal cord here. How do you even come to that conclusion? First of all, this is a guy with a history of severe neck issues. He had already been complaining about neck issues coming into the show. Like, this only exacerbated the the condition he already had. Eventually, he was going to have serious neck issues regardless of this. This just compounded them. And for a doctor to look at that and be like, nah, you got a stinger, kid. Get back out there. Yeah, he had a bruised spinal cord. Like, he was in pain for years after this. Um, First doctor he went to told him he would have to retire. He got a second opinion. The doctor told him, like, he would need surgery eventually. But if he, you know, was safe, he could keep wrestling for now. You know, he put the surgery off as long as he could, but then he... Had to get the surgery in 1999, and he ended up missing um, almost a year. And we know this would ultimately end up ending his career very prematurely. Um, that said, he had already been having neck problems, and yeah. something was about like this was especially bad. But something was eventually going to you know trigger a big incident with his spine. The funny thing is, it's almost better that it happened here at the beginning. Then, like, later when they were literally depending on him to draw the houses. Like, this is probably the best. It's certainly a lot better than if it had happened, like, mid-98 before The Rock becomes a star. And they just don't have anybody else to fill his shoes. So they they almost got lucky in that way. Because the fans really just wanted to see him stun people, which he could still do. Yeah, this is the thing. It. As bad as this was, it, it I think it ended up being great for him as far yeah. as getting him more over. Because, yeah, they, the storyline where they weren't letting him wrestle and, you know, he ended up stunning Slaughter and Vince and everyone else ended up being one of the biggest things that really got him over. And just the simple fact that, like, he couldn't be shown up because he couldn't take any bumps. So he just winds up looking like this dominant, awesome force, which is great. That's exactly what he should have been. And then it's main event time for the World Wrestling Federation Championship. We've got The Undertaker defending against Bret Hart with uh, Shawn Michaels as the guest referee. Bret is out first. He gets a lot of heat as he carries the Canadian flag to the ring. And then he asks for the Canadian national anthem to be played. Then Shawn comes out shaking his ass like he always does. This is a classic, super elaborate, long Shawn Michaels entrance. I am furious. 
I tell you furious that he did not wear the bicycle shorts for this special guest referee. Yeah, what was he doing wearing a pair of slacks here? Yeah, he what the, the fuck bicycle. was that about? That is not only, what I signed up like, for. Only a few weeks after this, he wears the like he does the famous incident where he stuffs the bike like stuffs athletic tape in the crotch of the bicycle shorts and like Vince lost his mind. Like, what a great opportunity this would have been for him to just like just sleaze it up. And said he kind of looks like a normal official here, and that's yeah. bizarre. And Taker comes out. Brett jumps Taker as he's getting his robe off, but Taker turns the tide, beats the hell out of Brett. Um, Brett turns things around, starts working on Taker's leg. He gets him in the figure four as Paul Bear comes down the aisle. Uh, Taker gets free, and he goes after Bear. He does hit him with a punch, but then Brett gets Taker with a chop block. Brett then busts out the ring post figure four, which he breaks right before Sean gets to his five count. And one of the things I like is that special referees usually suck. We all know this. Um, Sean has a really great way, though. And yeah. probably this Sean's is just a good his, referee. And this is probably part of his narcissism. But he's always like right. He has his face right in front of the action at the right moment so that you're literally watching him count off and he's making direct eye contact with Bret Hart the whole time. There's like a sizzle between them this entire match. Also, we have established he's the only person in wrestling who knows the rules. So he's probably the perfect referee. Uh, Then Owen and Pillman come down to ringside. Uh, Bret keeps working on the leg. Taker fights out. He chokeslams Brett. Sean is distracted running off Owen and Pillman, so he's not in the ring to make the count. Um, Brett rolls Taker up for a close two count. Brett starts working on Taker's back. He tries for the sharpshooter, but Taker sits up and goozles him. Brett blocks a chokeslam, but Taker gets him with a clothesline. Uh, they fight on the apron, and then Taker chokeslams Brett like off the apron back into the ring. Brett just barely gets his shoulder up at two. Uh, Taker sets up to walk the ropes, but Brett kicks the rope and crotches him. Brett then superplexes him and locks on the sharpshooter, but Taker manages to power out of it. Man. Might be the first guy to ever break the sharpshooter. I mean, on commentary, they do say he is the first. I don't know how true that is necessarily, but it might very yeah. well be. Um, Taker sets up for the tombstone, but Brett slips out. He drags him to the corner and locks on the sharpshooter around the ring post. This is the only time I ever remember him doing this. I loved this. Yeah. And then Taker gets out of it by flinging him bodily onto Shawn Michaels. Yeah, so Shawn goes down holding his knee. Brett goes to get a chair. He nails Taker in the head with it. Um, Then he has to do this brilliant thing where he has to throw the chair away, but he has to land it in the ring so Shawn can see it when he gets back in. Yes. And he does it perfectly. It drops, like, right in front of the corner. Sean slides back in to count the pin, but Taker kicks out. And then Sean sees the chair in the ring. He goes to get the chair. He yells at Brett. Brett spits a giant loogie right in his face. Man, there's a lot of spit in there. Oh, this is disgusting. I think this was supposed to go in the chest, but Brett gets him right in the face. I 
look, we can yeah. beat around the bush all day, but I think they talked about it being in the chest, and Brett took every opportunity to spit right in his fucking face. Yeah. Sean is enraged. He rears back with the chair, swings it at Brett. Brett ducks, so Sean nails Taker with the chair instead. Taker is knocked out. This was a nasty chair shot. Like, he sends it with everything. And I'm sure that that's what they had discussed beforehand. Like, Taker cannot just go down from a weak-ass chair shot. You need to knock him the fuck out. Um, And honestly, Bret Hart saves both of them. Because if he had successfully hit Bret Hart, both Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels would have been banned from wrestling in the United States. So, yeah, um, Brett makes the cover. Sean has no choice but to count the pin. He reluctantly counts the one, two, three, and then just rolls out of the ring and walks to the back in disgust. Absolutely brilliant. Brilliant, perfect finish for this match. Here's the brilliance of Shawn Michaels, okay? And this is the kind of thing that I'm not sure that there's anybody else in the wrestling industry who would have thought about this because we're still – New enough to everything being filmed and everything being like choreographed for the television cameras in such a way that I think he might be the best at that because he specifically he could have made the count anywhere, but he slides out to the ring. So he's looking directly in Brett's heart's face when he makes the count. He goes one lock size with Brett two lock size with Brett slight hesitation three lock size with Brett says fuck turns around and immediately storms out because he knew the whole time what he had to do. And Brett's just got this smile on his face. It is the most perfect imaginable storytelling because Brett has won. He has beaten both of these men at the same time. And it was Sean's fault. And they both know that takers coming for Sean. Now, like Brett has absolutely annihilated his rival here. It's beautiful storytelling. Yeah. Um, Brett celebrates with the belt. Taker eventually, like, woozily rolls out of the ring and, like, chases Sean to the back. Um, so this, you know, perfectly sets up the hot Sean versus Undertaker program, which is Sean's heel turn and eventually the formation of DX. Brett is kind of left without anything to do, and he ends up feuding with the Patriot. <laughs> As great as this was, it does feel like it would have been much better, at least for the company, if instead of putting the belt on Brett here, it had been a triple threat and Sean had won the belt. Then we could have avoided all the unpleasantness in Montreal. Like, literally, if you just change this so that it's every like we always talk about we joke about it a lot, but the ultimate sacrifice match in TNA. Like the match that everyone has to sacrifice something if they lose in order to get part of the match, right? That could have been this. It could have been like, all right, if Taker loses, he loses the belt. But if either one of Bret Hart or Shawn Michaels lose, they're banned from wrestling in the United States forever. Like that's what you have to give up in order to get in this match and get this belt. And that would have been so fucking interesting. (laughs) But instead, and then just having Sean beat Taker and then starting that chase off that way would have been great. Having Bret Hart hold the belt at all, why are you doing that to yourself? You already know you're going to fire him. Yeah, that's the really confusing part is um, 
Like they're already thinking that they need to like breach Brett's contract because they can't afford him putting the belt on him. Maybe they thought, you know, he's such a mark for the belt that he'll let us cut his pay if he's the champion. But it just seems insane. They're backing themselves into a corner. They just make so many bad decisions here. Like the booking is absolutely stellar. Absolute fire. Can't say enough about it. The decisions they're making backstage with their talent is the exact opposite. Um, so, yeah, overall, you know, it was a hit and miss show. I thought there was more good than bad. There were a couple really bad matches, a couple bad segments, but a lot of really great stuff here, too. And you can see why they're picking up momentum. I'm so glad we got to cover this one because we've never really covered the way that this worked out for Austin and all of that kind of thing, this is a really special show. Like you can tell we've mentioned before when we've done shows from this year that like the shows themselves aren't that good, but it's just the feeling of positive momentum. Finally in this company, it doesn't feel stagnant anymore. It feels like they're going somewhere. And that's just, I I just love to watch any wrestling promotion that has momentum. That's all I really care about. It's just that feeling of like, man, this play, it's exciting week to week to just see what's going to happen next. That's what I love. And like the, 1997 has it in spades. Yeah, this is one I have this. I wasn't watching at this point, but I just have this nostalgia for like, I can picture myself watching this and how awesome I would, how much I would have been enjoying this at the time. This is not too long after I stopped watching. Oh, and I, I would have been absolutely out of my mind to watch this show. Like, honestly. Sean turned heel Austin got hurt, but he still won the belt. Like mankind turned into do love, like a lot of, you know, water cooler talking about it on the bus on the way to school the next day moments here. Oh God. Yeah. And I remember hearing about it on the bus and just trying to figure out, cause that's what it was like for me is I, I would literally, I would remember the characters from when I watched before and be like, really? Steve Austin's that cool. Now he was the ringmaster. What the fuck? Yeah. So yeah, overall, definitely an interesting show. One that I think is you know, worth your time if you've got a couple hours to kill this weekend. Hell yeah, um, at, at least watch. Like you should watch Owen Austin because a, it's an important moment in history. But b, it's just a fucking good match. Yeah. So next time we're gonna have a very bizarre show. It's uh, SummerSlam 2003 uh, from the heart of the ruthless aggression era, as they are. Doing a lot of strange things with their company. Uh, main event, we've got an Elimination Chamber match with Triple H defending the World Heavyweight title against Shawn Michaels, Randy Orton, Chris Jericho, uh, Kevin Nash, and Goldberg, which is, that is quite a collection of six guys. That is absolutely wild. Like, some of the biggest stars in the history of the business, and also bicycle shorts wearing Triple H. <laughs> Yeah, uh, a match that gets booked as uh, you know audible because Triple H got injured and couldn't do a proper singles match. But also, we've got Brock Lesnar versus Kurt Angle for the WWE title. We've got Shane McMahon versus Eric Bischoff in a no-holds-barred match. And uh, Rob Van Dam versus Unmasked Kane in, I don't know, hardcore match or some other kind of gimmick. Whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> All sorts of weird stuff happening here. So, yeah, all that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.